Welcome to Kaizen, a podcast by elite athletes, hosted by Alex Sarama and Ashley Cookson. Get ready to hear new ideas and concepts from coaches working at all levels of the game. So, Francesca, we met through uh, the great community of basketball Twitter, and then uh, you came to our Elite Athletes International Camp last summer, and since then, we've obviously been speaking a lot, um, sharing ideas and, and the similarities that we face, both for the programs we work with. Um, I think you're in a pretty interesting situation in terms of you, you work within both a professional team and the youth sector, working at Forley Basket in Italy. Uh, how do you how do you find it, you know, working with both teams and, and the differences that you encounter working with some professionals in A2, which is the second league, and then some of the kids you have in your under-14s team? So, obviously, like, the methodology of work is completely different, but I think the first idea for us as coaches should be that the goal is different. Like, when we are playing, in a, say, in a second division game, our our goal is to win as many games as possible and our practice is finalized to death so obviously like we have some good prospect in our team and we want to develop them uh, in terms of like midterm development through the season and long-term development but with the young kids we are really that paradigm is shifting so you have to prioritize the long-term development even if it costs you something in the short term. And I can make you, and you can too, like so many examples of situations where there is this uh, balance that every coach needs to find between something that is productive in the moment and something that is going to create better player, educate better player for the future. Like uh, how much you want to, to tell them what to do, how much you want them to explore different options and, and fail sometimes because by failing we learn like we not just basketball coaches and players but like human being we learn by failing completely and not just a development um perspective that you mentioned but obviously offensively there are some key differences and some similarities and i think looking at the similarity side of it something that we speak quite a bit about um is conceptual offense and where that's why we we love watching a lot of the NBA because seeing some of of the things that have emerged over the last few years there it's it's really interesting to watch. I think some of those conceptual things that you see at the NBA are, are great uh, when you're teaching some of those actions to youth teams. But I mean, what do you consider conceptual offense to mean? So conceptual means that a player has freedom to take different choices. So to be clear. When you read something, like, for example, I'm playing a pick-and-roll and the defense play a hard hedge or trap or goes under or play drops, that's not, like, what I do in that moment is not an option, it's not freedom, it's not conceptual, it's just a read, like, the defense gives me something and I take it. For example, I'm the big man, I'm running in the middle of the floor and I have the ball handler on one side and the opposite guard on the other side and I can decide if go play a ball screen or go play a wide screen for, for the other guard. That cue, based on uh, where my defender is, I can run in one direction or the other, but like at, at a good level, my defender is going to be in the right position and I simply have to take a choice. Sometimes I play something, sometimes I play something else. It's, it seems very simple 
explain this way, but it's not like I have to take many decisions every possession. So stylistically, there's some major differences between the NBA and Europe. We speak about the classical versus jazz analogy that I'm using at Elite Academy, and we do see more classical in Europe, more set-based teams. What do you think are some of the reasons stylistically for some of those differences, Francesco? I think for sure it's more set-based. And I think the main difference is the ability of players to create an advantage from a one-on-one situation. I think in Europe, uh, the different rules, like what the defense is allowed to do and the difference physicality, you don't have so many players creating a good shot for them or for somebody else one-on-one. We have for sure like great players in Europe, Jved, Mike James, like great scorer, Mirotic, like you name. There are like plenty of them, but in the NBA it's different. And if you see the, the FIBA World Cup, for example, for me is a great place to see basketball because you see so many different styles and you see them going at one another. We have our common friend, that was part of the staff in New Zealand, they play a great conceptual offense that was so effective also in the World Cup against like top European teams. And I think there is space both for set and for a conceptual base offense. Like the Milwaukee Bucks, for example, when the playoff comes, they are gonna run probably some sets more than during the regular season because they want to go for a specific goal in a certain point of the possession or the game. Does it make sense to you what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you agree with that? Probably no, definitely. I, obviously, you mentioned New Zealand. I think they're the best uh, example of kind of teams to watch and the coaches interested in the style. Obviously, we're I'm looking forward to getting uh, Russ on a podcast and and talking about some of that in in more detail. Um, Ash, what are your thoughts on some of the conceptual stuff that we've we've spoken about? Yeah, so in in Europe, there's there's more misdirection, so that actions are sequential. So there's one on top of the other which is going to create the advantage later in in the shot clock. Um, whereas I think in the NBA, to agree with your point, Francesco, uh, there's there's a lot more, um, there's sorry, there's a lot less actions just because of their ability to create off the bounce. Yeah, and, and to, to follow you on that, I think that in Europe, as they say, as you said, there are more actions one on top of the other for us as coaches is to uh, find the right balance between get to the end of the set, get to the point where you want to go, but at the same time, don't run five different actions just as decoys and misdirection. Like you want to attack them sometimes. For example, if you start possession with a flare screen and your goal is to get to the final pick and roll, okay, that's a common set in Europe, but just two times per game you use the flare as a real screen to attack i think that makes all your offense way more effective if you know what i mean like uh, if you yeah, never that's... attack the screen really that's not gonna carry a lot of weight as a misdirection action exactly yeah that's that's the problems that you may face if you are very set driven is it becomes then very scripted and we're we're trying to score out of the last action when in actual fact, the first two actions got you very good looks. So it's about taking the first best available shot and not always the end of the, mm. the shot clock shot. Yeah, completely. And I think that's linked to like passiveness versus being aggressive and looking for, for that advantage off, 
off those like first few actions. I mean, certainly with the academy here, we've really embraced all the conceptual offense stuff just because the results we're getting now and the reads and and creativity that we're seeing from the players. Uh, it's it's really nice and kind of satisfying to see. And now we can put some sets in and some more complex offense, and they don't necessarily have the the tunnel vision that you've just spoken about, Ash, because they're looking for advantage and they, they know how to read those actions. Um, so obviously at the pro level pick and roll is is still one of the most, well, the most common action that we're seeing, a uh, key part of conceptual offense. What are some of the, the pick and roll uh, offensive concepts you use at Forley, Francesco? And, and I know we'll speak about some coverage counters and solutions soon, but one to specifically start about some of the stuff we spoke about before the podcast, looking at the touch and uh, slip screens. So right now, as you say, the pick and roll is the more common action to create dominoes in the offense. And I know you want to elaborate on what dominoes are, if you want to comment yeah, here. Ross McMahon's terminology. The moment an advantage appears offensively and we drive and kick or move the ball to get a great shot. I know that because the the EA learning poster, we've been drumming it into the kids here. Okay. That's a good definition. Uh, <laughs> so we have different coverages and something that we are trying to work a lot here and with great result are slips and slip screen. And we don't have like incredible fast roller. Our number five are great, smart player, but they're not good athletes. They are both Italians. We don't have an American in that position. We don't have a great like jumper, a leaper that can catch lobs and finish all of jumps. But we have smart player. And what we're trying to focus on is the moment of the release of the screen. So when to hold the screen and when to release the screen. And in our minds, there are three different type of slips. And we're going to speak about the touch screen later, but it's something mm. that I find really, really fascinating, especially against the switching defense. So there are three cues that can lead me to switch. The first one is I can switch, I can uh, sleep against a switch. So if the defense is going to switch, I know I can run to set the screen and run to the basket, sleep, anticipating the moment of the switch. I can sleep if my own defender, so the big man, is anticipating the edge or the commitment to the ball. So it can be a high flat, a hedge, a trap. As, as soon as I see him on my shoulder, I run to the basket. So basically any, any coverage, whenever the screen is defender is on your shoulder or above the level of, yeah. yeah. When he's already like the term that we want to use our player is when my defender is already committing to the ball, when he's not guarding me one-on-one, when he's guarding already the ball, I think this is something that can uh, be understandable for players. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's not over my shoulder, but it's simply committing to the ball, being uh, very far on the side from me. So it's not over me, but it's two meters aside because he's playing on the drop. Okay, and I can sleep. The third type of sleep the third cue for slipping, and I think it's something very tricky and it's very hard, but it's very helpful because sometimes with modern defense, what the ball handler, ball handler defender is doing is not trying to force the screen. So let's say that the screen is coming to my to my left and I'm the defender, I'm the defender. If I try to force the screen, I will try to put my left foot above the screener and try to pass with my own man to cancel the screen as... Yeah. 
I think the terminology is... Supposed to reject. Yeah. Yeah. But on many situations, what we are seeing in EuroLeague, you see this a lot, is trying to chase over the screen like it was a pin down. So, for example, I will pivot and put my right foot and following, chasing the back of my of my own man. And in that moment, what the screener has to understand is that that is not a neutral situation anymore. It's not a one-on-one situation for the ball handler where it doesn't have an advantage. The dominoes already started falling because he is already dri- driving to the basket. And I can't release the screen because if I wait, if I wait until like the old school would say like the defender has to pass over the screen and then you start rolling. But if I wait for him, he's not going to get hit because he's trying to avoid the screen. And if I wait, if I hold the screen too much, I can risk committing an offensive foul and I will not be able to give a good passing line to my teammate because he will driving at full speed. So the what player, is the cue for, for the screener, Francesco, where when they see the, the defender's hips open up, the on-ball defender's hips open? Yeah, they, is the that hips, the cue? Maybe the hips is like a terminology for us as coaches to understand. What we are trying to, to simplify is that when your teammate started drive, as soon as he started drive, and it's not a neutral situation, but it's a situation with an advantage. And we know that the advantage is because the defender has opened up his hip, is, is pivoting, and is with his hips open to the screen. With a smart player, I maybe I would use that terminology, but with a... Uh, with a more unexperienced player, I would simply go to run as soon as your teammates start driving. Gotcha. It's obviously like I can I can hear a voice in my head that say, okay, but you risk sometimes that the defender will pass with the ball lander. And I completely agree that sometimes like mistakes can happen. If you leave freedom to the players, uh, sometimes they will get this read wrong as many other read. But uh, in the long term, if you use videos and if you break down videos with them and you make them make them understand, okay, the open hips is you know is not trying to force the screen, is just chasing him, so you can sleep. And it's it's very important to make clear to them the difference between a defense that is trying to force the screen because some defense are really aggressive trying to disrupt the screen, and I have to hold the screen like it's not every time I sleep. Uh, in the NBA, almost every time you sleep, you don't see as many like great physical contact because they are going so fast and they sleep a lot of screen, at least from my point of view. In Europe, still, there are some screen that you need to hold really for one second or two. Great. So, Francesco, just to build on the slipping, the specific technique of the slipping the screen, is that something that you teach or is it just something that you maybe could get as fast as you can to the rim or create separation as fast as you can? Like, what are the cues that you use there for slips? And how do you teach the technique? Or don't you teach it? Oh, fuck, this is hard. Okay, let me think about it. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's a, yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I, have, I don't know, it might just be something that you say without even re- realizing it or... Maybe you don't so, no. even talk about it. But, no, this is, this is smart. So, uh, I think it depends when I start slipping. So, if I'm slipping because my defender is committing to the ball, so my teammate didn't start driving already, I mm. sleep straight to the rim as fast as possible. If 
my sleep is based on the defense of the on the defender of the ball. So probably the ball is already driving to the rim, probably at a high a high speed because the defender is pushing him. Probably I cannot run straight to the rim, but I have to take like a banana cut and leave him some space and create like a wide slip. That, yeah, create that distance that allows for a safe pass because like if I pass the ball to you at like uh, one arm distance is not a good pass usually. Like defend, the defender can touch it and stuff like that. So create more separation between the two players. But I think that for sure is is good for us to teach it. But like to play in small sided games, two and two, three and three situation is is way more effective for them to to memorize and to really master the technique and uh, especially the quickness of the decision. Yeah, I think it's going to definitely look different for different players as well. If we're talking about a great athlete, their slip's going to look different. You know, they might be heading straight for the rim looking for a lob, um, as opposed to maybe a slower, more back-to-the-basket big. They might opt for, because they're going to be potentially behind the play, a wider slip mm. where they're looking to take advantage of the two-on-one. I think that's a great example of KYP knowing your players and how different things and different strategies will be more effective based on the player and there's not necessarily one approach fits all. So we've highlighted some of the complexity that exists with pick and roll, but now in terms of helping young players understand it and to do it, uh, and obviously there are differences in approach. I mean, working with a professional team, I'm sure you would tackle this differently to if you're working with your under you know, 14s or 16s at 40. But what what are some ways you go about teaching some of these reads which we've spoken about? I mean, to me, it would seem that using a mix between a live small-sided game and some guided defense whereby we're constraining uh, how defense are guarding certain possessions within the small-sided game, I think that would be an approach that makes sense. But I'd love to hear how you would tackle this approach and what you would typically do with your players. So with pros, we usually go live almost right away. But one example of small-sided games that we actually did this morning during a like practice with part of the team, uh, the younger player, we did a 2v2, exactly about this. So the defender, the defense was playing a drop coverage, and the defender has to choose between trying to force the screen and chase. And so the big man has to realize if he needs to start sleeping or if he needs to hold mm-hmm. the screen. And so this was one read. And the big man on defense was already low. So the coverage was a drop and it was already uh, prescribed. But it changed the, defend- the defense on the ball. But during the, the season, what we do, maybe it's not to put so many limits on the defense. It's just simply to say to the defense, okay, you're going to do this particular kind of defense because it's what the opponents does. Yep. And we are trying to change the scoring system. We really like every week and during different days of the week, we try to emphasize, oh, this is what this is how we want to score against them. For example, they are a team that is great at protecting the paint. So we really need, for example, three point shots. So in this game, three point shots are gonna worth one point more. Or if we're going to play against a team that has a stretch five, 
we don't have a stretch five, but if our five is going to take an open three, it's going to be one point for the offense, even if we miss. So we're going to be able to recover on him and to uh, make him drive or make him pass the ball or make him do something else. I love that. So basically what you're doing is incorporating the scout uh, and the prep for who you're playing that weekend. And you're not just going through the scout and looking at what's going to happen, but you're actually taking it specifically and adding it into the task constraints that you're playing with. So I think that's a great way to, to look at how you prep for your games. Um, Touchscreens. We've obviously spoken about the slip quite a bit. What is a touchscreen for some of the coaches listening to this? So I will drop a video about this. Uh, in the next days, as soon as the pod goes up, a touch screen can seem similar to a slip and actually is kind of a slip. But I like for the offense to be proactive. So when we speak about sleeping, we speak about the cues. Okay, the defense does this, and I will sleep as a reaction to something that the defense does. A touch screen, there are three cues part in my mind. So a touch screen has to come from below the defender, not from on top. So basically screening the underneath. Yes, you're screening the underneath. And as soon as you touch him, this is why it's called a touch screen. And so you activate the coverage, you immediately release the screen and roll to the basket. So why this is very effective? Because especially against a switching defense, but against different kind of defense. The cue for the defense to know when to switch is when there is contact between the screener and the defender. Because usually if I'm guarding the ball, the screen is coming. I do not switch unless I feel the touch of him. And so I can go under him or switch from top, like it can change from defense to defense. But if the offense run, he touch me and immediately roll away, it can create so many miscommunication for the defense. Like you will see, if you see one clip, you say, okay, it's just terrible defense, like they didn't communicate. But if you're going through a high speed and like different times per game and there is a contact, there is a screen, you don't really know that the offense is not driving to that screen. Like you touch and you roll to the rim. It's very, very hard to play defense on, especially because you never allow the defender to go below you. You're coming from, let's say you're coming from the the low post position to the wing, you're screening, you're screening the inside shoulder, by st but staying below the defender. So as soon as you touch him, you do a pivot and you run to the rim. It's very hard for that defender to go between you and the rim again. And maybe they so, don't switch. Maybe the true defender will chase you and get to an open shot for your teammates. Sure. And obviously, yeah, the effectiveness of a touchscreen is we're not just talking about the switch, but let's take the switch as an example. Something we speak about is uh, bear hugging the roller. So if we are switching, we're trying to get underneath and stop the roll so we can contain it as a 2v2 and we don't have to tag. But am I right in saying that with the touchscreen, it makes it so much harder to do that because of the fact that if the defender is switching on, they're stuck on that high side and it's a long way to get all the way underneath. Especially, especially because it's supposed to be very dynamic, so it's supposed to be a catch, and I immediately release uh, the contact. So it's not, it's really, it's really not an easy action to defend, especially if there is a good communication between the ball handler and the screener. But this, the touch screen is not only for ball screen. Like 
a great example against uh, a switching defense is on a flare screen, you can use a touch screen because you're coming from below, you touch and you immediately release the screen. This is why it's very hard. You don't find so many teams that switch on on uh, back screen or flare screen because it's hard to play defense to switching to be switching on that situation. But you find teams that does that, and so this can be an effective tool against that kind of defense. Just the angle of that touch screen, Francesco, is that aiming for the back pocket? So imagine the player had a pair of jeans on. Would it, yeah, is yeah. that where you're aiming for? Uh, I would say so. But for example, if you are screening, uh, it can it it can it can change. I've seen some example, and you will see the video where you exactly go straight to his. Uh, how can I say his ass on a podcast? <laughs> like you give me a good <laughs> term. It's it's Europe. It's uncensored. Okay, so you know you can go you can go straight for the middle of his back and immediately roll. But usually it's the back pocket, as you said. But it's not. I would say it's not mandatory. It's not something that I will prescribe to my player all the time. You know, something else that is it's related to this is on a classical ball reversal. You know, in Europe, almost everybody play a ball reversal. You give the ball to the big four or five. He drive to the other side. There is the first one cut and the second lift from the corner and comes to play and end off. You know, you know what action I'm flow, talking about. Flow action, yeah. What usually happens, at least in our league, but in I've seen also from EuroLeague, is that in that end off that is from top to the corner, the angle is like going down. So many defense are allowed to, to cut the screen without paying a price for it. And it's because the... The ball handler doesn't go below the defender. So if you play that end off, you have to to aim at the defender, not at your teammate. And at the last moment, I heard a great terminology by Cody Toppert on the Basketball Immersion podcast, and is to reroute the defender over the screen. I use this with my player. Like you don't, is not allowed to go under. When I speak to my offensive player, like. You have to make him, it has to be so long for him to go under that it's going to be an open shot for sure. So he will try to go over. And if he goes over, it's a drive or something else. And the dominoes will start falling. But you need to make him hard for him to go under. Make it hard for him to go under. Yeah, that's and that's the easiest way to put it for your players so that they only have to think about one thing. Yeah. Make it hard for them to go under. Small-sided games, I think that so many times, if you play just five-on-five without setting a specific goal, okay, if you didn't play that action right, you will still get a pick-and-roll in the end of the possession. It's not going to be so effective, maybe, because you won't enter in that action in a dynamic way, but you will still find some good shots. So sometimes what we do is to put, like, 10 seconds, 14 seconds on the shot clock and just limit our offense to create an advantage, a good shot from that specific action. And so we we have seen so much improvement from our player in this way. With different action, it can be off-screen action, end-offs, pick a roll in a specific part of the floor, and it's very effective for us. Good stuff. I want to look at scout reports and game prep, especially for your pro team, Francesco. Um, 
kind of reimagining what we look at for the scout report. We spoke about an idea I tried back at Christmas. We did a, a tournament with a under 18 team and we did a, a James Bond theme where we, we looked at like things like mission risks, mission objectives. Uh, we, we had some fun with it. Uh, and we got a little bit creative. I, uh, I used some Photoshop edits to, uh, impose some videos of uh, bond villains i'll uh, i have to release the photos for that but uh obviously that's with a youth team pro team it's pretty different but do you think we're moving away slowly from this traditional idea of having a very le- lengthy scout report i mean we, we still see a lot of really great ncaa programs but you know they have 30 40 page scout reports which they're giving to their guys what do you do at 40 basket and how do you get that balance with too much and too little so <clears throat> we are going away slowly from the paperwork that was given to the players. Since we have one week to prepare every game, usually during the season, not during the playoff, we are still doing a lot of scouting, but it's more based on video. And we are trying to communicate that to pass the knowledge to our players more during practice and during video session than during, through the paperwork. Because we simply don't think it's, it's very effective. Like the players, the players like to have it. We have good players, like uh, great professional that want to see because they are used to also like they want to see the inbounds that the other team plays. They want to see the main set that they play. They want to see the staff. They want to see to a lot of stuff, and they like to have it printed down. I've seen players like 30 minutes before the tip off re going through the scouting report, but it's our scouting report is six pages, not more. And it is one pages of the roster of the other team. Just simply go through the name and staff. Uh, one page for the starting five, one page for the bench with individual characteristic and what we're going to do against that specific player. And some pages with the most run set. This is it. And throughout all the, pro- one page for the game plan. And throughout all the process, all the paperwork, uh, we are trying to focus more on what we want to do against that team than on what they do. So let's say that we play against a great right-handed player and we decide to send him to his left on every pick and roll. Our emphasis will not be, oh, he's great right-handed player. Like, if he's going to go right, he's going to go for 30 points tonight. He's great. He can finish a dream. He can a pull-up jumper with his right hand, we will try to emphasize more, okay, we're going to play weak on his pick and roll, and this is why we're going to be successful. So even in the video session, we are going to for sure put some clips of like him taking a good shot and scoring, but we will focus more on, for example, there are some teams that played against them the same type of defense that we're going to play, and we try to put those clips into the into the video or did we play against him already and did we have success doing this Mm. specific game plan already so uh, our videos try to be at least in my mind they are interesting like we try to to be as specific as possible Um, so let's say that we run a double eye with a guard and a big man and we know that we really want to play that specific set against the next opponent. I know because I scout all the team during the year that there are three other teams in the league that play the same set that we run, more or less like the same setup. 
I will go through Synergy. I will try to find those clips and I will see if they run that set against them and if they were effective. And so to show that to our player is going to be more helpful than just say, okay, we are sure that if we're going to run, I don't know, like it's called Horse 3, we think it's going to be effective. We prefer to show it to them, like to say, okay, see, they force a switch here with one and three and they create great advantage. Like we try to show to show them, not tell them. Oh, that's great. I like that. Uh, you said there uh, a key thing you look at is did we have success with the same game plan when, when you're playing a team uh, for the second or third time? Are you uh, sometimes anticipating the adjust adjustments when you're playing teams, you know, on when you're meeting them again? And do are you seeing coaches and, and teams in your league doing a good job of that? Or are you generally getting away with keeping to the same stuff that, that you did and then having repeat success with it? So what we are trying to do throughout all the year is having uh, our key defensive identity that we build throughout the season and to change only if the change that we are going to make, that we're going to make, is going to be not something random for one opponent. You know, we really think that there is a, a learning curve for the team during this season, even if it's a pro team. So what we want to do is, and the message that we are trying to pass to our players, is not that, okay, we're going to play against the Elite Academy, and so we're going to trap this week. No, the message will try to be, okay, since we're playing against Elite Academy and they have a great point guard, it's a great opportunity for us to add this other wrinkle to our defense. And this is something that will now become part of our identity. We don't want to do something, okay, because we are doing just today. This is going to be part of our identity. This is going to be make us a better team because we will be more adaptable going forward. When we are trying to do a big adjustment, we try to implement it as far from the game as possible. So let's say that we want to send every topical role to the right end of the driver, of the ball handler. We don't want to start speaking about this on Thursday or Friday, when the game is, is near because we're playing on Sunday. So we want to start speaking, thinking about this on Tuesday and as more as the week goes on, we want to work on things that we are sure about, that we feel confident. We want to install confidence in our player, if it makes sense. So let's say that the more common action that this team ran was end off with one of the big and topic row with the other big man. And they run on two different sides, on the left and on the right. And so on one side, we decide to chase on the end off in order to be able to push him to the end that we want to. On the other side, we cut the end off in order to be, to be able to play base or ice on the topical row. And we started working on this actually with our physical trainer on Tuesday. We were doing like a little bit of physical work and one of the station about like footwork and stuff like that, we, we, we tried to make it as more basketball related as possible. And we did it on the two different side of the floor as a warm up. On one side, they were chasing and chasing to the screen, and then they were like catching, catching something and shooting because it was a warm-up drill. And on the other side, they were 
cutting the the end off, playing bass, and then going finish the warm up. And so this was very effective for us. And then we went to the three v three, and then we went to the five on five, and then we showed them the video. You know, this is their most run set, and this is why we want to play this. I'm definitely stealing the idea of using something that you have in the scout in the warm up with the strength and conditioning coach. That's awesome. Is there any other little ideas that you have like that to sprinkle in some of the game prep? So I've uh, I've still this from Andrea Trinchieri that in my mind is like one of the top like ten coaches in Europe. No, ten is is way too low. Like is is mm-hmm. one of my gods for sure in this profession. Mm-hmm. I, I love him and. Um, the example that he made was they were playing against Poeta, which was the point guard of the national team, Italian national team for a few years. And he was great with his right hand, not so much with his left. And so in every side pick and roll, they were sending him to his left. So if he was on one side, on the left side, they were playing base or ice. And on the other side, they were playing a normal drop, sending him to the middle of the screen. And he was speaking at the clinic, and he was telling me, and he was telling that uh, the the warm up in the first day of the week was actually this. So they were in couple, and there was the two assistant coach playing like fake screen on the on the wings, and the couple of the player were just warming up, so like jogging, and on one side it was base, and on the other side it was drop, just to make them remember throughout all the week, because. Something that I like, I don't think that player are gonna forget, like they know it. But to remind them every time and to start on Tuesday, it show uh, it, it shows them how much it's important for us. Like this is really important for me. Like you can tell them something on Sunday, and if they are professional players, they will probably remember it. Like it happens so, to, to us sometimes that we had to make some uh, late minute, last minute change. And uh, just to cl- just to clarify as well, Francesco. So you're you're not doing your scout report like one or two days before. It's the whole week before, so you can get all this stuff in. Yeah. So about the the week process, we try we start on Tuesday. If there are some important thing that we want to to change about our basic defense or offense, uh, otherwise we usually don't. We usually try okay. to work for ourselves. But uh, as I told you before. The idea is that even the part that is related to the scouting process is for ourselves. So we don't want to be like to seem paranoid and to say to all the week, oh, they're very strong, they're very strong, they're very strong. We actually try to do the opposite, especially if we're playing against a team that is on top of us in the standings. Mm-hmm. We are trying to, to say, like, okay, they're a great team, we respect them, but okay, this is how we can win. The opposite is true sometimes when we're playing against a team that maybe we already beat one or twice or that is below us in the standings. We will start on Tuesday. We're not like lying to our players saying they are better than than us, but we will try to say them, okay, this is how they can win with us. This is if we let them play the way they, they want to play and we don't impose the power hour of like being playing greatly because you are under a lot of pressure this will be very unpopular in the united states probably (laughs) (laughs) 
I do want to get into some of the dynamic 1v1 stuff. And, I mean, we're very much aligned with some of our ideas of how and how to play youth basketball and what the benefits are to playing with dynamic 1v1 and how it underpins everything. So, Francesco, what, what would your definition of, of playing dynamic mean? Dynamic 1v1. Obviously, it, or, or it originates from Italy, so it's fitting that we're talking about this review. <laughs> so, I will define dynamic 1v1 speaking about the defense. So, every time I catch the ball as defensive player and the defender is not arriving while the ball is arriving, while I'm catching the ball, it's a dynamic 1v1 because it will be late. So, I will quote Messina here, great coach, legend. And when speaking about defense, he says that the defense has to arrive while the ball is arriving. He's a great fan of like spacing and timing. And so while the ball is arriving, the defense has to be in a neutral position. If I'm late because I was helping somebody else or I was distracted, I will not arrive with the ball. So this can happen on a closeout. So the offensive player maybe will not be moving. It will not be dynamic, but the defense will be. Or it can be because the offensive player will also be moving. So, for example, on a blast cut from corner to the wing, I will catch the ball. The defense will be late and it will be moving too. So there can be dynamic 1v1 where both sides are moving or dynamic 1v1, usually the closeout, where the offensive player will stand still or maybe just moving a little bit, but not running to the ball, and the defense will be running. That's interesting, because we've actually, how we look at dynamic 1v1 is we basically just use a definition of using movement, i.e. some type of cutting action, to uh, create the one-second advantage. So that's obviously different to static 1v1, where you're in a stationary position, and then you're trying to create an advantage, like through dribble moves or triple threat moves. But that's interesting with the defensive kind of viewpoint as well that you've mentioned. Um, so dynamic 1v1, a lot of the reads that we see out of it are just critical for teaching players how to play. Um, why, why do you start with teaching dynamic as kind of the first thing that you do with your program at Forley? And I, I think that's a pretty common approach throughout Italy. Am I mistaken? No, you're right. I think like with different, uh, the importance that different clubs uh, attributes to dynamic 1v1 and reads is different, but it's usually spread in Italy the notion to start with dynamic actions. And we usually start with this because it, first of all, it's easier for the offense. So it will give player more, more satisfaction while playing. And as Peter Lonergan said, like, skill means fun. Or mm-hmm. did they quote him right? But this is the yep. quote like that. So. The more skilled you are, the more effective you are while playing, the more fun you're having. So if the defense and you over the ball and you start playing, it's harder to beat your man one v one. Okay. And it's also more real in our experience, in our mind, to it resemble more how they will play when they grow up. In Europe, you don't see many players like creating an ISO and shooting mm-hmm. one from the elbow, for example. And so it would be 
That, I just want to, sorry to interject, but that's, that's the exact conversation that we've actually been having internally here at the program because we're so fortunate to have Yorick um, focused and really um, so knowledgeable with all the skills training. But we've been looking at that balance between static and dynamic because I think in the past, the EA, we've probably focused a lot, I'd say, on the static stuff. And it's great for upskilling the players. And like you say, it's more fun for them to play because they can create an advantage without always needing to bring another player to the action. It's like instant dominoes. But at the same time, at the highest levels of the game, especially now, playing in a good level competition, it's so much harder to create your advantage doing it in a static way versus playing dynamic. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there is, there should be a part in your development as a player where, you know, in a learning progression, you will start from the easiest, you will go up, up and up. And in the end, like the static 1v1 is the last ladder because it's the hardest. And you want something even more hard than the game probably because in the game you will have your teammates helping you and you will have the option to pass and you will not be forced to create one 1v1. But as we sometimes in our drill progression, we go to a 1v2 situation, for example, to stress the importance of finishing through contact or to dribble with two players around you. Like there is a part of the practice where you go even harder than it's supposed to be in the game. And I think the terminal, like the comparison is right there in our eyes. So Francesco, I think you made a great point on why it's so important to teach your players dynamic because watching kind of the european game it's how players are finding advantages versus relying on a static which you'd see in the nba with amazing athletes and i think that's something we've been looking at a lot here at our program we i think in the past we've done quite a bit of the static stuff and while it's been great for upskilling the players and giving them confidence and making it fun for them to play basketball at the same time, when they play against a good level of competition or they get older, they're simply going to struggle to create advantage going just relying on those static 1v1 moves. So I loved what you said about how teaching dynamic is kind of preparing them for uh, for what they need as they get older for playing against a good level of competition. But at the same time, I guess we can't just say dynamic only because there are times that static 1v1 is needed, right? I will also say this, so like you see a professional game and probably the players that will end up like making dribble move and creating their own shot will be like four of the 20 players on the two roster. But if you saw the same player on their youth team and while they were growing up, probably even the less skill of them was able to dribble and to create their own shot. So like we need to teach player how to dribble, how to create their shot, how to do different stuff with the ball. Like we should not, especially at younger age, we should not settle for, okay, you stay there and you, you shoot, you jack up open trees. Like this will not be fun for the player and will not lead them to be successful. Because if you're not even able to drive the ball on a straight line in a under 16 game, it's harder to imagine that you can do that in a professional setting. Just a question for both of you guys about dynamic v one v one. Do you both integrate actions into dynamic one v one? So what I mean by that is, are you using an off ball screener, player coming off it, player guarding that action? Do you use those kind of 
um, reads in your dynamic 1v1s. Likewise, would you use um, uh, the 1v1 plus one with the screener on ball? So you're coming off the pick and roll, they're, they're not necessarily a roller, but they're just there to set the screen. Are you using those kind of actions and scenarios within your dynamic one-on-one, or would you class that as something different? Maybe Francesca, you can build on this if I start. I mean, I think uh, under 14s, we rely primarily on the blast cut to, to find the advantage, and we just look straight for that dynamic. We're actually not allowed any type of offer on ball screen in Belgium. So uh, U14s are just focused on that. When we, when we get up to under 16s and 18s, the best 1v1 players, so, you know, they might be okay just relying on a cut or a blast to, to get something but most of the time you can't so that's why like you say layering in other actions to help make the advantage that you get off the dynamic easier um something that we've we've done a better job of recently is connecting other actions other two-man game actions into dynamic so for instance let's take a gets action uh like a the stationary handoff a throw and go whatever you want to call it when i started the season i I called the cut, say the player coming to receive the ball for the gets, say he's cutting. I just called it like a flash cut. And that wasn't a great use of terminology. Then we changed it and we called it a blast cut because it's effectively what it is. And straight away then what we saw was because we'd we'd spent quite a bit of time focusing on the blast cut reads from the perimeter, but then he immediately applied exactly the same reads, i.e. overplay, curl, gap for a shot. They immediately applied that onto the get section. So I think that's a good example of how you can connect terminology from your dynamic and link it into other actions. Does that make sense? For me, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, referring to what Ash was saying, I think that what you call, like you call 1v1 one plus, one plus one, I call it like situational 1v1. One, one one, and we do it a lot, especially like on ball screen situation. It's actually one of, the key part of our individual development with our younger player in the pros. So I mean, like from 16 to 20, 21 is related to dynamic 1v1 in ball screen situation, off screen situation, uh, flare screen situation, because a part that I see really missing, at least in Italy, I just can speak about Italy, is that connection between you work on skill development a lot when you're like 16, 15, 17. And as soon as you get to 18 or you get to be a younger player on a pro team, you don't play 1v1 with a pick and roll. Because for example, we have a really, really talented kid from 19 years old. And during the practice of the five, five on five, he doesn't get a lot of repetition with like pick and roll situation. And so it's so much important for him to get 20, 50 reps in a in a different context. Obviously, yeah, it's where not he only has to on make. Five on five. Yeah. yeah, he only has to make the two reads. Is it over or is it under? And then he's focusing on the skill sets of keep on back or shooting it from behind the screen. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. I was I was thinking about that a little more. Um, similar context. How many reps do we get during a practice of pick and roll in the scenarios that we want them to? explore new skills so for example keeping on back 
those snake in the screen, those kind of things. If they're only getting a limited amount of reps, then how do we expect them to be able to execute that within the game? I, I love what you're saying. I think that any young player should get lots of reps. And like this is not possible with a, during a normal practice with a professional team. Like They are not the point guard and they don't run 30 pick and roll per practice during 5-on-5. Five five. And that's not up to the coach, but we as assistant and we as player development coaches, we need to find that, that space in our week, in our season plan, in our off-season plan to make them better in those skills. And the other part that I would like to say about this, about reps, is that with professional team, we do so, so much uh, on-air shooting. And for professional, like veteran player, it's very important to, to shot, to, it's also something that they are used to for all their career. And we are never going to take them that away from them. Like it, it would be crazy on our side. Like we want them to shoot, to feel comfortable and to see the ball goes through the net, like for 10, 10, 10 times in a row. It's great. But especially for younger players, we want to have a spot where they shoot contested shots. So we are doing a lot of stuff, for example, on closeout, we shoot or fake one dribble, just one dribble. So it's shoot or pull up jumper. And the defense is forced to run to them and they can contest, they can leave space. So it's guided in the beginning and then live with different limitations, different uh, scoring system. We try to make it as fun as possible, but with the real difference, in my opinion, it's more effective than to shoot eight shot with no difference. I really believe this. But I really believe that, especially in youth practice, there should be a part for shooting that is without a defender. Yeah, I, I agree. I've had experiences working with professional players as well. And all they want to do is take the, you know, make the 10 makes from five spots. And that can be frustrating for us as coaches because we know that Maybe that's not helping them in the game so much. Yes, it does help with their confidence, uh, but is it really translating the way that we, we would like to see it? By the way, Alex, this is off topic. Do you have this as the sign of the academy? Like this is for your like like educational stuff. This is like the silent clap. They use like the deaf people do this. And oh. when you're saying something that I really agree with, like I, I'm because I, I've actually still is from like I was part of an association. Yeah, I think that you can edit this with the scouting part, but uh, I think we as coaches, especially with professional players, because with young players we already are creative, we change stuff, but with pro players we need to be able to break the routine and the boringness of the week sometimes and so to be more creative with the scoring system with the shot clock time for example it's very important throughout all the season it can be as we said before a way to express our priorities about discovering or about ourselves or about a specific player so i love the idea of the golden snitch from our common friend ross mccain and i would be ashamed of speak here about it because it's his idea i don't want to steal it but it's basically, do you want me to explain or are you going to have him on? Come on. Uh, we'll, let we'll have him on, but it's okay. Okay, okay. But I do got to say, we, I love what Mike Mike McKay did. He leveled up the idea. He actually bought an actual golden snitch off eBay. 
and used it as practices. That's that's the next level idea right there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's knowing your audience, that is. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, Francesco, it's been a pleasure having you on, but where can, uh, can coaches find out more information about you and some of the videos and ideas that you're sharing? Oh, they can find me on Twitter and my my name is actually very stupid because I made the account yeah, I a lot of years time, ago. I think it's time to change it. Now, you, now you're on this podcast, man. It's It's got to be a, a oh, new... I- I cannot change I can change the name and the name is serious but like the are you able to change the at your name no you're not right yeah you can you can can. how about this we'll put it we'll put it in the show notes so you can have a few days to think about it get something new and and then we'll have the new polished version ready for the release of this yeah because like my account name right now is banal idiota which is like uh, boring and stupid or stuff like that Uh. But you have to say, so uh, I will change there and I will put it back on Instagram because originally that was like my Instagram account and it was so fun. Like my friend will joke with me about it. And my agent, my basketball agent told me like, you should change it for basketball. Good, good. I think that will be the longest ever answer we get for coaches sharing information, but I love it. The Italian way. Francesco, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Kaizen Podcast brought to you by Elite Athletes. For coaches interested in following us on social media, our Elite Athletes handle is Elite Athletes BE and our Elite Academy handle is just Elite Academy Antwerp. For an in-depth and behind-the-scenes look into all that we do, head to www.eliteathletesonline.com and join a growing community of coaches from all across the world. Astronauts, cause we so high from off that line, we got from new lines. Me and my man feel like we astronauts, cause we so high from off that line.